The matter before the court today is BCD 23-122, Robert Dupuy et al. versus the Roman Catholic Bishop of Portland. Uh, I see we have a full house. We are also being streamed live on the web and have allocated a little bit more time than we typically do in this case. Uh, I see counsel are also present, I assume ready to proceed. Before we do that, I would ask that you please identify yourselves by saying your names for the record together with the party that you represent, starting with the appellant. Good morning, Your Honor. Gerald F. Petroselli, uh, Petroselli Martin in Haddo in Portland. With me at council table is Scott Dolan from our office. Good morning, Your Honor. Michael Begus, Berman and Simmons for the appellee with Timothy Kenlin and Joseph Gauss uh, from my office as well. Thank you. Uh, counsel, if you're ready to proceed, Mr. Petroselli, we'd be happy to hear your argument. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. The question today is whether Maine Title 14, Section 752C, as recently amended, violates the Maine Constitution. This is a question wholly of Maine law. It is not a case of first impression. There is abundant authority guiding the court's analysis. The constitutional principle to be involved here may be derived from cases that have been decided between 1823 and 2022. That principle is restated in Merrill in 1981 as follows, quote, the legislature has no constitutional authority to enact legislation if its implementation impairs vested rights or imposes liabilities that would result from conduct predating the legislation. This enactment does both. That language is a paraphrase of language in Coffin v. Rich, decided in 1858, as the court knows, years before there was a 14th Amendment in the federal constitution. The consensus meaning in as many as 10 opinions, or perhaps more, in nine cases that involve the application of that principle in the context of, statute of statutes of limitations is that an expired statute of limitations may be extended. I'm sorry, an unexpired statute of limitations may be ex extended, but that an expired statute of limitations may not be revoked so as to initiate again the litigation of the cause of action. In 34 years, there were the following cases. Merrill, Dobson, Danforth, Rudder, Dams, Morissette, Heber, Angel II, and LVI, both opinions in LVI. In those 10 opinions, there were 22 justices who participated. There were no dissents. There were no concurrences even suggesting that the restatement and reapplication of that principle in the context of statutes of limitations was even doubtful, much less wrong. The business court relied on only two decisions in support of these orders. One of them was Norton, which is textually inapposite. The court said there is no due process issue in the case, and we have no occasion to analyze whether the federal or Maine Constitution, in terms of due process, 
has any bearing on the outcome. It was a contracts clause case. LVI on the issue today was a unanimous decision. The three dissenters would not have applied that, re, re, uh, excuse me, amendment retroactively at all. Mr. Petroselli, I see that the green light is on. And I'm going to backtrack uh, to the first issue, which is the Rule 24 report. Is there a specific question or questions that has been given to us from the trial court on report? Well, Your Honor, I apologize. I don't have that in front of me, but I think it's the point of the report was for this court to decide whether or not this statute may constitutionally permit these cases to proceed. And is that your formulation or the trial court's formulation? I do not, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I did not expect to have to recite it, uh, but it seemed to me... Well, I, I'm not trying to play hide the ball. I don't think that the trial court did actually formulate the question. That's, that's why I'm a little concerned. Well, uh, uh, it has seemed to me since the beginning that the point of this was to decide that constitutional question about this statute because it is a gateway question as to where these cases go from here. And if the question isn't cleared, we have the prerogative to focus the question ourselves, correct? Certainly, Your Honor. And aren't there really two questions involved then in this? One uh, would be uh, whether essentially the statute of limitations can be changed, but more importantly, and this is the language I think you just used, whether it imposes a liability, doing so would impose a liability that did not exist at the time. Aren't those two different questions? I think, Your Honor, that the question of a liability or the question of the impairment of vested rights are the two things that prevent constitutionally retroactivity. But it seems to me fairly apparent that the only point of these cases is to get the money, which is a liability, from which this diocese has been immune for upwards of 65 years in one of these cases since that statute ran. And so the question of the liability status before enactment and after enactment as a matter of math seems to me difficult to challenge. They haven't been granted immunity. The statute of limitations presented any claim against them. There's a difference, isn't there? Well, Your Honor, it's a matter of, of terminology, but there is certainly basis for saying it's an immunity, as in we said in our brief, Hofeld, in that canonical work, says that... No the cases you cited all term on the concept of vested right, is that correct, under the due process clause? All of those cases are saying what a vested right is. prevents and is. And, and if you don't have a vested right, you don't have immunity. Well, yes, Your Honor, but the point is that there was liability before the statute ran and no liability afterwards, and now liability again. Are you that, conceding there could have been liability before the statute ran? Well, it could be liability in any case before the statute runs. You know how juries go. It's just a matter of how the case comes out. Well, I thought That's, you were asserting that actually the... the uh, Catholic bishop would not be liable before the statute ran as a matter of law because uh, there would not have been posed liability for negligent supervision. Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I, I think that that is a theory of liability that would not have been available when these statutes were viable. And uh, unless the court decided to adopt that theory in one of these <laughs> cases at that time. Counsel, what about the other causes of action that are pled in the complaint? 
Well, Your Honor, any I, of those have been viable at sure. the time of any class? But, but a statute, I'm sorry, statute of limitations bars the whole action. Put that aside for a well, moment. Uh, and, and focus on the second part of the test that you're asking to look at. Are any of the causes of action that are pleaded in the complaint, put aside negligent supervision, were any of those available <coughs> to any of these plaintiffs at the time the incident occurred? At least one or more of them, certainly, Your Honor. But the point is the action would have been barred. The action was barred by the passage of time, not piecemeal theory by theory. The case is barred. Have Doesn't you run across any cases where a court has held that um, statute of limitations does not bar the action, but it does bar any cause of action that was created or recognized after the original period ran? No, Your Honor. Uh, the point of our argument was a little more nuanced than that. I apologize if I didn't make it clear. No, I just, so it doesn't turn on that point. Your argument is larger. I'm saying that's a supplemental the principal point, which okay. is that without that, the, these actions still cannot go forward. And, and I think we all understood that. We were just trying to separate out that, or can those issues be separable, I guess is part of the question. In other words, that if removal of the statute of limitations here would expose the, the uh, bishop to liability that would not have or could not have been imposed as a matter of law, shall we say, at the time of the original accrual. Does I that guess matter? I mean to suggest, Your Honor, that it seems apparent to me just tactically that the plaintiff's best case is negligent supervision and those other ones are a heavier lift. And so the chances of being on the wrong side of a jury verdict are substantially increased if the latest theory of the court is retrofitted into a case that was five years ago. Can I ask you another question? Obviously, you're arguing this case under the Maine Constitution, and we are at this point proudly a, a primacy state. Uh, but um, Section 6A was not enacted until, what, 1963, um, which is, in fact, after the Due Process Clause of the US Constitution. Doesn't that mean that perhaps we should be looking to the precedent established by the US Supreme Court on this issue? And they've said you can. Uh, do this on the statute of limitations? Uh, respectfully, Your Honor, I disagree because I believe this court said essentially in NECEC, as I cited the Coffin v. Rich case from 1858, the due process protections in the main Constitution are drawn from Section 1, Section 6, and Section 6A, and have gone back as far as 1823 in Labory to be employed on a vested right. And the question is if there's a vested right, we don't need the federal constitution to protect it because NECEC says we do this on our own with the in, main in constitution. Other, in some other jurisdictions, they make a distinction between statutes of repose and statute of limitations in determining whether retroactivity is allowed. What's your response to that? Thank you, Your Honor. It's a very important question. And if this is constitutional, so would a statute abolishing statutes of repose retroactively. They can be wiped out just as easily. There's nothing magical to limit the legislature's ability to eliminate any statute of limitations in any case for any reason if these orders are affirmed. But part of the philosophical underpinning is that a statute of repose kills the, the, the claim. It, it doesn't exist after that, whereas a statute of limitations simply says the claim isn't dead, but you simply can't file it after this date. Is that a difference, a distinction without a difference? Yes, because you can file it. The, the court officer doesn't prevent you from walking into the courthouse to file a case. In linear time, the consequence of filing the suit 
I mean, if somebody falls asleep at the switch and fails to plead one of these things, then the case can go to a judgment. But the point is that the legislature can abolish the statute of repose, which killed the case, and to use the plaintiff's term, revive the action. There's no distinction in terms of this constitutional issue. The scope of the legislature's power will be exponentially enhanced by affirmance of these orders in terms of retroactive legislation, and not only about statutes of limitations. The cases we cite, many of them involve statutes of limitations, which make them precedent here. But the others that don't involve statutes of limitations also involve questions of retroactivity. You, you cited a number of uh, workers' compensation cases, I mean, a fair bevy of them, that adhere to the principle you're offering to us here today. But workers' compensation is a, a kind of a world unto its own. It's all creature of statute and you know, interpreted by the court. Are they, is that a distinction that should lead us to look at them differently than cases determined no, on no, common law? No, An action is an action, and whether it's a common law rule or a statute or a combination of the two or a regulation that's authorized by a statute, the question is not what happens to the thing that the plaintiff claims. The question is whether the defendant's right to be free from the liability may be taken away after it vests. And the argument very simply is the focus of the analysis should be on the effect of this legislation on the defendant's rights to defend the case. Now, if we could defend these cases with the statute of limitations, there would be a different result and way less liability. It's the taking away of the defense. And if Your Honor doesn't like calling it immunity, then we have a vested right in the affirmative defense. We have a vested right to plead the affirmative defense. But I don't think the vocabulary is controlling, and I don't think relinquish matters either, although the law court has said in two of these cases that, that the expiration does relinquish. Mr. So you, you agree that the, the states across the nation are pretty well split on this issue as a due process and whether or not there's a vested right. I think I did a count, I think 15 said yes, and 17 said no. Uh, the United States Supreme Court has said, uh, yes, you can lift the statute of limitation that there is no vested right. And the most recent case is Vermont, correct, which held that it would be contrary to your decision that you could lift the statute of limitation. My question is, most of those cases seem to turn on whether or not the right is a procedural matter or a substantive matter. Do you agree that that's what, how the decision should be decided, whether it's procedural or substantive? No, because procedural rules are not exceptions to the vested rights doctrine. Vested rights applies to all rules, including procedural rules. But you agree that there are 15 states plus the United States Supreme Court has held otherwise. Yes, because Your Honor. That because it's procedural, it's a remedy. And, and respectfully, Your Honor, that's wrong. And the only out-of-state court that really matters here is Connecticut's, which correctly says, while going the other way, that in Maine, this is per se unconstitutional. Now, if the learned justices in Connecticut, who wanted to go the other way, say that this is per se unconstitutional, it seems to me that that matters more than the number of courts that have said merely procedural trumps the Constitution. The rules of civil procedure do not trump the Constitution. Why, the why does Connecticut carry- Trumps the rules. Why does Connecticut carry so much weight other than the fact that it supports your position? 
uh, only because, Your Honor, that court wanted to go the other way and was looking for things to support it. Okay. I particularly want to call the court's attention to Jeremiah T. and Greenville. In Jeremiah T., that was one of the cases you submitted to us later, right? Yes, Your Honor. And you indicated in that that Jeremiah T. stands for the proposition that the burden of proof is substantive. It's a procedural rule which would have substantive effect and therefore cannot constitutionally be retroactively switched. And that's because in that decision, it cites the United States Supreme Court, which has says because of the importance of the burden of proof, it's not procedural, it's substantive. Correct? Rules that are procedural in form have substantive character when the effect is to change the outcome or impose liability or increase liability. But the Supreme Court that you want to rely on in Jeremiah T., you don't want to, you don't want to rely on the Supreme Court decision regarding due process when it says that it's procedural, it's not a violation of due process. Your Honor, I respectfully disagree. I think Jeremiah T. means that a procedural rule can violate due process if it has that kind of substantive effect. The rule's procedural until it becomes substantive. Thank you, counsel. You'll Thank have you, an Honor. opportunity to address us in rebuttal. And Mr. Vigos. Good morning, Chief Justice, Associate Justices, may it please the court. <clears throat> this case is about the will of the people upsetting the diocese's mere expectation of getting away with enabling child sex abuse and cover-ups. There has never been a right to enabling child sex abuse. The diocese wants you to create a vested right in getting away with it. Court procedure is not property and cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Statutes of limitation are laws of procedure and remedies, not substantive rights. Substantive revivals are typically unconstitutional in jurisdictions. Procedural revivals are not. Here, it's a procedural one. No new substantive cause of action. But it's more than labels. Common law causes of action allow everyone to conform behavior and incentivize safety. Here, there's never been a due process right to enabling child sex abuse. Like fraudulent securities transactions, asbestos-related injuries, Agent Orange injuries, child sex abuse, or CSA, is one of a few narrow categories of latent discovery injury claims, causes of actions that this legislature, through the will of, pe of the people and for rationally-based public purposes, removed time limitations by passing procedural legislation. It doesn't matter where you start. Maine or federal constitutional law should result in the same legal conclusion. <clears throat> there is an entire body of Maine case law from 1823 in which there's never once been a recognized vested rights in the expiration of a statute of limitation. Maine constitutional law on retroactive application is uncrystallized, but favors constitutionality of section 752C. To the extent the court completes a primacy approach and finds remaining gaps. Federal jurisprudence is perfectly clear. Revival of statutes of limitation are constitutional as long as there's clear legislative intent and entered final judgments are not reopened. Here, the statute has clear legislative intent. Vermont just did this. Maine should follow. 
so-called natural invested approaches, rights approaches to court procedure would drag us back to the 1800s. Do we really want to revert backwards? And do we really want to be an island in a sea of states allowing, who are allowing survivors to come forward and their courts finding constitutionality? Does this court want to expand Dobson and Morissette dicta on statutory causes of action to, to uh, substantive common law causes of action? The answer should be no. I yield my time for questions. Mr. Uh, Bigos, then I'm going to go to the same question I started with Mr. Petroselli. What is the question before us? The question before, Your Honor, is whether retroactive application of the removal of the statute of limitations after the plaintiff's claim has already been extinguished by a pre-existing statute of limitations divested the diocese of vested rights and violates in substantive and procedural due process rights guaranteed by the Maine Constitution. So you're phrasing it a little differently than Mr. Petroselli, I think, phrased it. Um, and do you agree that the trial court didn't actually phrase a question to us? The, the application, I think the, the, the presentation is of the question by the DCD is broad. What Justice McKeon wants to know is whether the statute is constitutional by engaging in a, you know, presumably a procedural and substantive discussion, and then whether it applies uh, to the diocese. So what I'm taking from that then is, as in NECEC, we can phrase the question ourselves. The court, yes. Assuming we choose to accept the report. And yes, th this question, which the BCD, you know, in doing it, trying to do its job, has presented uh, legal issues that you know range, the, the you know the plethora of what's in our briefs. Then let me ask this question to you: Is there a difference between the question that, as answered, for example, by the U.S. Supreme Court, saying that the revival of the statute of limitations can be constitutional generally? versus the question of whether it can be used uh, uh, to impose liability if, in fact, at the time of the events, no liability could have been imposed from a legal perspective. In other words, there may be a difference. I mean, you have to acknowledge there may be a difference between the liability imposed on, say, the actor versus uh, the church for this situation. There, w there would be. Um, the, the, our position is clear that the, this the, the question of causes of action that existed at the time is not on report and, the, and that the court... But um, isn't that integral to the question of the statute of limitations and whether or not it actually impairs a right or imposes a new liability? And imposing a new liability is part of the analysis, isn't it? Yes, it is. And of course, we briefed that not knowing exactly how the court would, was interested in dealing with that issue. On one hand, you know, a case for I remand. I guess we get to decide since the trial court didn't actually pose a question to us. <laughs> right, like like uh, like some cases, it could be remanded back for that to be generated, uh, whether the discovery should proceed. Um, and, but certainly, there's enough in our briefing f to allow the court to know that there's there's not enough to automatically exclude it because of the various case law over the decades. Some of which we cited, you know, from the 1920s and even earlier. The other the, the other for for today. You know, the, the, the issue about whether the cause of action was re recognized more recently um, uh, discusses dates of accrual versus recognition of the cause of action. 
So in Fortin, for example, the accrual occurred 20 years before the court explicitly recognized the, that test for negligent supervision. There's no difference. There's no magic formula about whether it should be 60 years or 20 years between the accrual and the recognition. Counsel, can I, can I take you back to the language that you just read from the trial judge's order? It says, uh, it references uh, whether the removal of the statute of limitations after the plaintiff's claim had already been extinguished. Do you think the plaintiffs, any of the plaintiffs' claims here have been extinguished? Um, absolutely not. Um, and this gets into like labeling of immunity, extinguishment. Uh, the, co the cause of action exists, and the statute of limitation merely uh, is a, a gatekeeping function that the legislature had set, again, arbitrary under Chase Securities and other jurisprudence. But isn't that just playing wordplay? I mean, after the statute of limitations runs, that's the end of the road, unless something else happens down the road. That's, I think Mr. Petroselli would say he didn't use these words, but it's, it's just as dead, whether it's a statute of repose or a judgment, anything else. That thing is not going to happen again. And his point is his client is entitled to plan for insurance and other things made down the road, assuming that the thing is done once and forever. So the, the question that comes to us without doing too much wordplay is whether or not the existence of a statute of limitation vests a property right in the person who is going to embrace it. Can you talk to that, please? Sure. The, the, it, it, it's up to you to decide procedural versus substantive, of course. And this, the, the question begs the question of what is the limitation under separation of powers principles of what the legislature can do and, and, and cannot do. The, the state count actually. But is, I, is the, not to interrupt, but is the procedural versus substantive question just an illusory analysis? Because whether it is substantive or procedural, as Mr. Petroselli <coughs> says, it's just as gone as, as under any other circumstance. And the last few words, please. It's that right, that vested right that he's claiming, the property right. Uh, to be free from lawsuit on a particular claim is just as gone whether it, we call it procedural right or a substantive right. The, the, the label absolutely does matter and it is, it is wordplay. What, what Maine law hasn't done thoroughly enough is analyze the distinction between substantive and due I mean, process. isn't that really, it, it, it's procedural if in fact it doesn't impair a vested right or, do, or violate due process and it's, and it's substantive if, if it does. Right. This, this court has said in State v. LVI a little bit of dis, the substantive procedural discussion. In Norton, uh, they did a little bit there. But the court in Norton also has criticized itself for the substantive procedural distinction being divergent of itself and confusing. And that hasn't been resolved. And many of the cases in uh, dealing with some of these statutory causes of action have cited to the US Supreme Court. There's been no, no decision has pulled it together thorough enough to give instructions to the legislature on how it should be considering retroactive application. This retroactive application is obviously a, a really weird uh, part of the law that needs to be predictable. The workers' compensation cases that uh, Mr. Petroselli listed among his list are, are unique. Those involve statutory causes of action, and the legislature has s changed the law so many times that the court has had to decide, like, well, how do these get retroactively applied? And, and they've done their job. Common law causes of action are very different, and the legislature has not done that, uh, that, that frequently. 
And so the, the, the Dobson and Morissette dicta are, uh, cases rather, are very distinguishable um, you know, on, on those reasons and many others. Thank you, counsel. And Mr. Anton, we'd be happy to hear your argument. Madam Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Assistant Attorney General Jason Anton on behalf of the state. Courts within and without Maine have recognized that statutes of limitations reflect a policy judgment about the pursuit of remedies, not an assignment of substantive rights. And that's especially true, and I'd like to call the court's attention to, the fact that in this case we're dealing with common law torts, where liability is independent of any legislative enactment. And therefore, that Mr. like- Mr. Anton, it's so please. since the green light is on. Please. Uh, isn't the problem here, though, that the revival of the statute of limitations, as applied to the, the church, really is imposing a new liability? I don't think that's the case, Your Honor. All that the statute is doing is removing a statute of limitations, a procedural bar to a claim. The parties are free to return to the BCD and argue about which errors common law should govern the claims. Is that a question we should be answering? I don't think the court needs to address that, no. I think that's up to the BCD upon return. All, all the statute entails is the elimination of that procedural bar to the common law claims at but issue. But if the, if the diocese would not have been substantively liable prior to the Fortin decision, doesn't applying that decision to this case on remand uh, convert the what might otherwise be a procedural issue into a substantive issue? First of all, I, I, I think as we laid out in our brief, I don't think Fortin announced a new cause of action, but rather recognized that it wasn't decided and then decided the question. But second of all, I think again, that's not decided by this court's um, adjudication of the question before it as to whether or not the statute of limitations expiring gives rise to a vested right. Again, there could be arguments before the BCD about how applying the common law of today might be unfair to the diocese, and they can make those arguments, but it does not inform the central question before this court, namely whether eliminating that statute of, of limitations infringes upon a vested right. And that's the distinction I really want to draw that we talk about in the briefs. There are a series of cases, uh, as Justice Mead pointed out, in the Maine Workers' Compensation Act context, which is a unique statutory structure involving you know, a right to compensation. And there is a difference recognized both this court in Bellegarde and also in Chase, particularly footnote eight of that decision, which distinguishes the Chase case from the Danzer case in the Supreme Court. There is a difference when the legislature creates a cause of action and assigns a statute of limitations to it. It sets a limit on the, to the extent of that right. But when you're dealing with common law causes of action, those causes of action exist independent of the legislative enactment. And all the legislature can do at that point is set a limit on the pursuit of the remedy. And so all that's happening here is the legislature is bringing back the pursuit of that remedy. It has done nothing about the liability. Ms. It has Anton, not changed. Yes. Looking at uh, looking what other states do, that really doesn't give us much guidance, does it? And 15 states plus the United States Supreme Court support the plaintiff in this case, and 17 states support the diocese in this case. Is there anything to learn from looking at what other states have done? 
I think they're useful so far as they provide persuasive analysis. Again, we, we lay out reasons in our brief why we think the Supreme Court, for example, is persuasive because when Article 1, Section 6A was adopted, it was explicitly made to echo the 14th Amendment, that there's analysis in those cases, unlike in Dobson and Morissette, where they just announce what that without, again, in dicta, they announce that uh, the vested right would be uh, violated if there were a revival of the claims in that statutory context. And we think that the analysis there is helpful. It's the same thing with other states. I think it's useful to know that other states in the Northeast have come out in favor of permitting the elimination of the statute of limitations. But I agree, this is a question of the main constitution. So they're only useful insofar as they're persuasive. They don't dictate the court's outcome. Do, doesn't case. the whole thing get a little metaphysical? I mean, the, the image, the analogy of what you're creating here is that there's a cause of action. It's viable because the statute hasn't run. And the statute has run, so it can't be filed, but there's still a dormant cause of action that's still alive there and can be revived. It sounds like something from a horror movie, but it, it had been lying dormant for these years. And the legislature, with the turn of a, a statute, can bring it back to life. Is that, that, I mean, that's the central analogy for your entire argument. Is that correct? I think that's it. I think that's foundational. But, but to isn't our that a little? Horror references aside, isn't that a little disturbing to everybody out there who says, okay, statute of limitations against the cause against me has run, okay, I don't have to worry about planning for this, planning for that, all of a sudden out of the blue, this monster arises from the crypt and, and it's attacking again. Uh, an analogy may be useful, Justice Mead, if, if, this, if there were conduct that occurred in the 60s and then the legislature created a cause of action relating to that conduct in the 80s, the cause of that, in the 60s, that conduct would not have been tortious. It would not have been recoverable in any way, shape, or form until the, the legislature decided to create a cause of action. This is different. The liability and exists according to- Let me stop you for one second. Do you think that that would be unconstitutional, what you just described? To, to impose a liability after the fact Correct. via a new statute, yes. Okay. If you created a cause of action and then you changed the outcome, the impact of conduct that occurred in the past. The difference here is the impact of that conduct is no different. In the 60s, this was tortious conduct. It's solely that the cause of action was not pursued. And so all the well, legislatures- or, or theoretically, it couldn't be pursued against this defendant. I mean, it, 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 why does it make a difference whether it's common law that you couldn't do it or it's a statute that you couldn't do it? The result, the practical result is the same, isn't it? Well, I think our argument, first of all, is we don't agree that necessarily there wouldn't have been a supervisory tort, but there are other intentional torts involved in this case too, not just that single tort that was recognized in Fortin. Intentional, uh, intentional tort on the part of the church? And there are other means by which, yes, there's several intentional torts here about holding the diocese liable in this case, not just that supervisory tort. But again, I think this is an issue that can be argued below as far as the theoretical question as to whether the elimination of the statute of limitations suddenly creates a liability that did not previously exist. It doesn't. And the parties can certainly argue, even if the statute of limitations is eliminated and the BCD agrees that the common law at the time is the only fair thing that could have been applied, then they can argue in that context whether the diocese could be held liable. But I think what I hear you saying, and I just want to make sure I put a fine point on that, sure. that um, we don't, you, think, you don't think we need to address this question, but it seems like you are agreeing that the elimination of the statute of limitations can't thereby create a liability that would not have previously existed. 
Yeah, I don't think that the the uh, the legislature has the ability to create and change the outcome of past acts. Okay. I think that's established, and that's what it is not doing here. It is solely eliminating the statute of limitations, the that procedural question, that affirmative defense, which would seem very clear if the defendant in this case was the actor. There's no question that action would have been tortious as alleged at the time. It's less clear when applied to the diocese. And again, I think they can argue that below upon return to the BCD. As this court recognized in Berry, there's no vested right in an affirmative defense. And that's all that this statutory change affects, just whether the affirmative defense is available. The substance of the claim can be argued at length by the parties before the BCD. Do you think Berry takes us to that conclusion? Just start with Berry and we're right there. I think there's a series of cases. The Bellegarde case that I referenced and we have as a CF site in the context of that argument in our brief recognizes, for example, the difference between a statutorily created action. In that case, uh, I believe the law court- But that was court, a statute of repose, was it not? The 90 day, the 90 day deadline for filing a mechanics lien. It was, it was, it was, and that was part of the reason why- They, the, just, they differentiated between statutes of repose and statutes of limitation. That's correct, and also common law claims versus statutorily created claims. And that's why the court chose not to apply Rule 6 in the adjudication of when that 90 days expired. And that distinction, that understanding in that case is what the state submits should animate the court's decision here. A narrow ruling is available where Dobson and Morissette and those, that line of cases remain on the books, even though we believe those are dicta and clearly distinguishable from the case here. But where a common law claim, when the statute of limitations is a eliminated or extended for such a claim, it does not infringe upon vested rights. Is there a difference? Is, there, is the right to assert a common law claim a vested right? I, the cause of action, I would argue, is. I think that's established why, in Maine law. Why isn't an affirmative defense that would defeat the cause of action a the vested I, right? I, I don't think the fact that a cause of action is a, you have a right in pursuing a remedy therefore means that the inverse, that having an affirmative defense, you have a right to. The cause of action is about recovering. So there's, we certainly this court uh, in Merrill and in other cases has recognized a vested right to the cause of action, but never before has this court said that the affirmative defense is something, namely the affirmative defense of a statute of limitations in a common law case, in, creates or is protected by a vested right and therefore eliminating it would violate Article 1, Section 6A of the Constitution. And one other thing, if I could make clear in my final moments here, I do believe the court did state the question. Um, we, we discussed this, I think, previously. On page two of the court's decision, it's page 14 of the appendix, there is an identification of what the questions are before this Well, it, it, I think as it, in its context, it says that's what the uh, Roman Catholic Diocese has suggested is the question. <laughs> and I think this court, if I may respond, Your Honor, I think this court is certainly, as, as you've suggested and, and, uh, and your colleagues have suggested, is certainly free to specify the question as it sees fit. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. And Mr. Petroselli, you've reserved some time for rebuttal. Excuse me. Uh, as Mr. Anton just suggested, I'm reminded that, yes, we did suggest the question and. I suggest that the court basically pitch that question to this court, but this court can reframe it. Dobson is not dicta. This is not a common law question where a common law court is reconsidering one of its own decisions from many years ago as perhaps having um, lost its vitality. This is a matter of defining and stating the meaning of a constitution. The Constitution has not changed, 
Even the addition of 6A doesn't change the constitutional underpinnings that go back to 1820, which were invoked in 1823 in Lavery and other cases like Coffin in 1858. The question is whether the cause of action is, you have a vested right in the cause of action and no vested right in a dispositive successful defense. What is fair about that? What is well, constitutionally fair about that? The United States Supreme Court plus 15 other states have said it is fair. And, and Your Honor, I'm here. And I know here. you disagree with it, but there are 17 states that agree with you. So it's not that clear. Well, if we're counting states, I win, but I'd rather do it on the merits, Your Honor. I think that the 17 are correct because the vested right arises the day the statute expires. From that day until the effective date of this legislation, there was no liability on the diocese because the suit couldn't get out of the starting blocks. On that day, the statute, the, is the claim extinguished? Doesn't matter, Your Honor. Effectively and functionally, economically, in linear time, it is non-viable to use Justice Godfrey's phrase. Is there any difference between a statute of limitations and a statute of repose? None whatsoever for these purposes. A statute of repose can be blown up just like this one would blow up the statute of limitations. And Dobson's repeated, repeated invocation by all of the many justices in ten opinions afterward makes it the meaning of the Constitution. It is not dicta. It was the rationale in Dobson. It is the determined authoritative meaning of the main constitution on due process as a result of the repeated invocation of the very definition. As stated in Dobson and as stated in the footnote in Merrill, that's what the main constitution means. Now, as I was starting to say, this is not a question of whether the court can reconsider the wisdom of all this without violating principles of stare decisis. Unless the court wants to say that all 22 justices in 10 opinions in nine cases were wrong, then the question presented here, whether the one framed by us that the court sent here or the one the court frames, is that a vested right to freedom from liability may not be yanked away. Mr. Petroselli, that, that I appreciate the rhetoric, but in fact, in Dobson and in the other cases, we have never decided the precise question that is being presented here, Thank you, which is why it's being presented. So to it talk has, about whether we want to disagree with all 22 justices is really not the argument. Respectfully, Your Honor, I agree, but there's never been a holding of the sort Your Honor suggests because in 200 years, the legislature has respected the Constitution and has never once tried this. This is the first time. And when time. you say there's never been a holding such as suggested, that means in this state, because we've not decided the question. Well, it has never arisen because the legislature never retroactively abolished the statute of limitations and reimposed a potential liability. The question really before us is, do they, do they have the power to do that, or is it a violation of the due process? Clause? Exactly, Your Honor, and I'm suggesting it would be of an expansion of legislative power that has been rejected by this court multiple times for 200 years. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. And counsel, thank you for your arguments here this morning. Obviously, there's a great deal of interest in this. I don't think I've seen this many people in the courtroom before for our law court argument. 
but as is our usual practice, we will be taking this matter under advisement and issuing a written decision in due course. With that, I believe that concludes our business for the day.